Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Ralph Schroeder. He's professor in social science of the internet at the Oxford Internet Institute. He has interests in virtual environments, the social aspects of e-science, and the sociology of science and technology. He has written extensively about virtual reality technology. So, Dr. Schroeder, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Likewise, a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Sure. So, um, does social interaction change in virtual environments in comparison to offline interaction? Right. Well, let me back up a little bit here and uh, start by saying I've been studying virtual reality technology since the early 1990s. <laughs> so that's a long time. And um, at the same time, I stopped do, focusing on that area of research uh, about more than 10 years ago. I wrote my last major book on that topic. I think it came out in 2010. So I haven't been doing that research for some time. But the reason I think I can answer your question is because not much has changed in that time. <laughs> that is to say, the technology was basically in place uh, some time ago. And one thing that has happened uh, continuously, even since the early 1990s, is that people have speculated, you know, we will live inside virtual worlds, we will spend our time there and so on. And so virtual reality has always given itself to a lot of speculation. The problem with that is that virtual reality can be anything and nothing, if you like. And what I have tried to do in my uh, earlier work, and I stand by that, is to define it very carefully. So if you have a definition of virtual reality that says virtual reality is having a sense of presence, this is a big notion in virtual reality studies, presence of being in another space. Then you define it very carefully because being in another place means uh, you're there with your senses. So it's an empirical definition. To me, that technology, so for a single user, has never been very interesting because that basically means that you're inside of another virtual reality alone. The much more interesting uh, thing that I've studied for many years is being there, what I call being there together, that is having a sense of co-presence with another person. Now you might say, well, that's just like the two of us here, <laughs> but you know, we only really have our faces to interact with each other. Mm -hmm. And that does change social interaction. Obviously you and I would interact differently if we were sitting across a table from each other. But co-presence can be defined as having a sense of presence in, a, in another space, again, through the senses, through the eyes, through the sound and other senses potentially, and having a sense of being there with another person and interacting with that person. So it's a computer generated environment which we share and in which we interact with other people. And that has taken various forms over the years. 
Uh, and it certainly does change uh, the way people interact. And you can study it very nicely because you have, if you like, a, a laboratory. You put two people into that space and have them do things with each other. You can study that. Uh, then you have large online spaces. The most famous one, perhaps, uh, was Second Life, which many people studied. And uh, people interact quite differently there because they have avatars, so-called, and they have a, a computer-generated presence. And so you can do things differently in a virtual environment. But the thing that people mean, does social interaction change? Well, of course it changes if you have certain media and you interact via those media. I mean, interaction also changes for the two of us if we communicate via email. And so uh, it's very good to study, uh, but you have to be very precise in how you define virtual reality and virtual environments. Mm -hmm. And when it comes specifically to immersive virtual environments, I mean, is there any difference there? Right. So that's a great question. And, um, you know, people in the who study this typically distinguish between desktop environments. So that would be something where we have a laptop and you and I might share the same space via that. Or immersive, that typically means you have a head-mounted display or a, a headset, as it's sometimes called. Or you have something called a cave, which is a whole room which generates the environment. And uh, I think the interesting thing there is that those are quite different things and yet they share certain similarities. You share that you might move through different spaces like in a computer game, but you also might have a full body presence in a, a, in a cave type environment or with a headset on. And then you experience the environment much more strongly. And I think, again, there's a lot of uh, myth that is quite interesting to think about here. One of the myths, I think, that is uh, so interesting and that people ordinarily still have is that face-to-face -face interaction is always better. So, you know, if you and I were sitting across the table, we would interact better than if we were in a virtual environment. And I think the most wonderful experiment that we did was that we actually proved that that's wrong. And let me go into that experiment a little bit in detail. Sure. So what we did was we had two room size environments, caves. And I was working at the time in Sweden. And we had a cave in Sweden and we had a cave in London. The people that I was working with, there's a, a, a wonderful set of researchers there. And we hooked them up and we made them do a Rubik's Cube puzzle together. It's not a big Rubik's Cube. It's a scaled down version. But they did it, you know, one person in one place, one person in the other. And we proved that you could do a Rubik's Cube together as well in the virtual environment as you could in real or in the physical space. And the reason we proved that is because we literally had somebody, two people across a table putting the Rubik's Cube together on a table, on a physical table. And it takes the same amount of time and you can show that. And it's quite different if you have a laptop and you have two people in that same environment, because that's very difficult actually to move things around. Mm 
blocks around. So if you want to do certain things in immersive virtual environments, they're very good for that. And you can imagine why a room size environment is very good for moving blocks around <laughs> because you can give each other the block, you can look at it in different ways, you can throw it around if you like. Uh, but that's a very unique kind of thing. And I think people tend to think that face-to-face -face is better because we have so many different cues, right? I'm looking at your eyes, you're nodding now, you're raising your eyebrows. Those are very good to detect face-to-face. -to -face. But if you and I were building a Rubik's Cube or exploring a space together, we could fly around and so on, a virtual environment might actually be better for that. So I think we have to think about these things very carefully and uh, we have to think about what it is, which kind of tasks, which kind of interactions we could do in a virtual environment that would be better and easier to do and maybe richer to do and maybe more uh, fun to do in a virtual environment than they would be in a physical environment. Mm -hmm. So we have to consider the task at hand and perhaps the goals we have, because I mean, he, he, in this case, I guess that when people think about social interaction, they are not thinking exactly about doing a Rubik's Cube or something like that, but really having, for example, a conversation. Right. And a conversation is a very good example. And, uh, you know, that, for example, that specific example is, is a very good illustration of what you might actually be able to do better in a virtual environment. A very specific example here is that the group in London, for example, Mel Slater is a famous researcher in this area. And he showed that if you have a fear of public speaking, you know, if you're a lecturer and you're afraid of speaking to an audience, then it might be actually quite good to practice that in a virtual environment. So you put the headset on and you literally see a table around you with lots of figures and they could be animated or they could be uh, real people, other people with headsets on and you're talking to them and the reaction can be kind of uh, experimentally moderated. So people can be nodding in agreement with you or they could be shaking their heads or they could be falling asleep and so on. And that way, if you have fear of public speaking, it might be very much more easy to practice that in a virtual environment than it would be in real, where you might be actually terrified of speaking to a, uh, a, a group of people. But again, think about that and think about the different scenarios. You might be trying to practice acting. You might be trying to practice a job interview. You might be trying to, again, uh, the interesting thing about virtual environments is that they are spaces. So you can do things in virtual environments that you cannot do in real. You can fly over things, you can throw them around, you can manipulate them, you can explore spaces together. But those are, as you say, a series of tasks and a series of interactions, and those can be done better. I think one of the things that strikes me in these 30 years or so of, of studying virtual reality, virtual environments, is that people don't really consider what it is specifically that we can do better there. And that's why people say that virtual reality has never 
really found what's called a killer app, <laughs> a killer application that would really make us uh, go inside virtual environments. It's interesting to think about because, for example, video conferencing, like we're doing now, also never really had a killer app, so-called. It wasn't really ever taken up. It was around in the 1960s and 70s even. But, you know, and then it, it became much more popular with Skype and other technologies like this. But it was really, I mean, the killer app in this case, so to speak, was the pandemic, right? Nowadays, we teach online, we do these kinds of interviews, much more online. That's just all of a sudden taken off. And the reasons for that were external, right? We could no longer interact face to face. And so the technology all of a sudden took off. And it's not possible to predict really whether that kind of same thing will ever happen with virtual environments, with virtual reality. Who knows? But uh, at the moment, at least, it has uh, mainly found some niche applications, some interesting example training to do dangerous things and so on. Um, and gaming, of course, is by far the biggest uh, application so far, but it has never really found its place. And so I think with all the speculation, I think we still have to wait to see what that technology really enables us to do and when and how. Mm -hmm. But I mean, by studying people's online behavior, can we learn anything new about people's offline behavior? Is it possible to extrapolate from one medium to the other? And is that something you study and are also interested in or not? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it is possible to study things. And that's why virtual environments were such a great thing for people like myself who wanted to study social interaction. So I think you can also study things like uh, Second Life, as it then was, I don't know if that's still popular, uh, but there are certainly many online large-scale worlds where many thousands of people are interacting, and that can be studied as a kind of prototype society. Who owns property? How do they develop it? How does it work when people come together and have to make their own social rules for how to behave in a place? That's very nice to study, and that's the kind of large-scale virtual environments. On the other hand, people have used gaming to study how people engage in teamwork. People have studied immersive environments to do things like, for example, uh, another scholar I know in Stanford has tried to study how people can become more environmentally aware. So he has put them into an immersive environment and literally had them cut down with a chainsaw redwood trees. <laughs> He's in California. Uh, that makes sense. And so he makes them cut down redwood trees in order to see, well, once they've cut down redwood trees, does that make them more environmentally aware of the damage that that causes? Well, that's a really interesting application. And so we can learn from that whether those kinds of scenarios make people uh, behave differently. But again, you know, it's a tool. It's 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 for the social scientist. It's a wonderful tool, uh, and it can be used in different ways. But we also have to think about the limitations. Right. So, uh, if I may, I mean, I think the other thing I keep on talking about video conferencing because that is a really interesting parallel case. So, 
virtual environments are computer generated. They are, the graphics are generated, you create whole different worlds, you can change the appearance of your avatar. It's very interesting that with the pandemic, with many millions of people changing to online conferencing, we still don't know very much about how that works and how it works better and worse. And that's quite, um, well, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about how little we were, we know about how this kind of new tool, which we've only had for the last couple of years, really, you know, whether that's more effective and whether it's more, I mean, I think we also might think about not just the kind of instrumental way these environments allow us to interact, but also have a, a broader notion. Is this a richer form of, of interaction? Is this more fun? Is this more engaging? And, you know, for video conferencing, I think what you and I are doing is quite engaging at the moment, right? And fun and, and, and it's good. Would it be better if we were sitting face to face? Well, in certain ways, yes. And in other ways, it might be more difficult. It might be more embarrassing. It might be more daunting and so on. It would certainly require a lot more travel in the case of you and me. So I think we, we, we need to really think outside the box a little bit when we talk about online interaction and offline interaction. Mm. So moving now on to another, to a, another topic of your work uh, and now focusing more, I guess, on social media, are people selectively exposed to political content on the Internet? Right. Well, I think it's worth just saying that, um, you know, I've been studying virtual environments for a long time. Now you're going into a quite different area. So I think we again, we, we might back up a little bit here. So more recently, I've been doing a lot of work in a much more traditional area, which is how people are exposed to news and political information. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is something that people have been studying, goodness, since the 1930s and studies of propaganda and so on. But here again, we have some new tools for studying this area. And when you refer to selective exposure, selective exposure is a technical term in media communication studies that means that uh, people are uh, exposed to certain types of information more than others because they seek that kind of information. Some, some people believe that this confirms their own beliefs, so they only get exposed to what they would already like to believe. I could put this all in more technical language, but I think this is fine for now. Now, Recently, I've been studying in particular in a, in a large scale project, we've been studying uh, populism and the politics of populism, which obviously is a, is a major topic since Brexit and since Mr. Trump. Now, what we did there, uh, I think you asked whether we can have new tools for the study of certain things. Well, what we had in this case was a wonderful data set which meant that for several countries in Europe and for the US, we had what's called web tracking data. So we had data from a representative sample of people, let's say 2000 or so in each country, uh, the data of every click that they made on their internet for about three months. 
So, you know, every click on your browser, whether you were going to the BBC News website or whether you were going to, I don't know, some shopping website and, and, and what have you, we recorded that over the set of three months. And that kind of data is becoming more and more available to social scientists. But what was quite unique and what is much more rare these days is that we could combine that with a survey. So at a couple of points during that three months, we asked people a battery of, I think it was over a hundred questions. What kind of media do you normally consume? What kind of news do you uh, normally consume? What are your political beliefs? What obviously your name and not your name, sorry, your name is precisely what we didn't know. So all this was anonymized, but what gender are you, what age and so on, what income do you have? So we knew a lot about these thousands of people and we knew what they clicked on. Now this allowed us to study selective exposure in a more in-depth way than has been previously possible, apart from a very few teams are working on this around the world, this kind of data. And we were, because we were studying populism, we were particularly interested in whether right-wing and left-wing populists went to kind of different news and political information sites than others. This is a very long-winded way of answering your question, but I'm getting to the question. So when you ask, uh, are certain people, such as right and left-wing populists, exposed to different kinds of information and news? The short answer is yes, and we could show that by reference to a representative sample and because we knew that they had, for example, said, I voted for Mr. Trump or I voted for the alternative for Germany or something like that, or I voted for the, uh, the yellow vests in France. And yes, they have certain kinds of websites that they are prone to go to more than others, which is essentially what selective exposure means. And we published some papers about that, which I think are, are quite interesting in what they show us. But there are two things that still kind of bother me about that research. And that is that if you think about all the kind of websites that you and I might go to or that an ordinary citizen might go to, we of course have what's called massive overlapping audiences. So that you don't only go to certain websites all the time, you go to many different ones. And that of course is as true of populists or of right-wing or left-wing voters as it is of others. What I found so interesting about the results was we then went back and looked at, for example, specific areas. So let me just highlight one, which is climate change. Now, the common perception about climate change might be that climate skeptics go to different websites they go to websites where their beliefs are confirmed, and those might be rather special websites. Alternative news, this is sometimes called. People have studied this, Breitbart and other kind of very climate skeptic denialist websites where people make claims against that kind of uh, 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 climate change science. And yes, we could show that that is 
true uh, that right-wing populists especially go to those websites more if they are also saying that they have a different view of climate change, namely a more skeptical one. And I found that interesting. But the even more interesting thing, which we could not really dig into, was something else, which is that those very same people, if you looked at actually the websites they went to, they went to sites that were actually talking a lot about the climate science. So they might go to NASA, you know, which does a lot of investigation of the weather and of climate change, or they might go to other very scientific sites that talk a lot about the science. But they did so, one suspects, in order to say, this confirms my climate skeptics beliefs, because these scientists are a little bit uncertain. Or they found, you know, that certain weather phenomena are not linked to climate change. And so they picked out and they tried to educate themselves to a very large degree about climate science. It's just they tried to find the climate science beliefs that suited their pre-existing climate skepticism. And that's quite interesting because that goes kind of against this stereotype that I think many people have, that these are people who are more in ignorant. And I think we would find that also uh, uh, about other areas. In other words, that people who are who have certain beliefs which might be considered extreme, uh, for example, extreme right beliefs or indeed extreme left beliefs, actually they're not so ignorant about politics. They seek out a lot of political information. It's just that it's different from the kinds of information that other people might seek out. And I think that's quite an interesting finding. Mm -hmm. But just to be clear on this point, does that mean then that people who are already politically motivated, politically engaged, and perhaps they are partisan and uh, already have decided on their position in cert uh, about certain topics, are those the ones that tend to go out on the internet and seek confirmatory uh, news and evidence? Or is it that people in general tend to be selectively exposed to political content online? Yeah, that's really hard to say because I think one thing that has happened with the internet uh, and with the kind of proliferation of outlets that we have is that we simply have so many more of them. So I think the debate about whether in general people are more selectively exposed or not, I think that debate is still open. And I think one thing that we might do is actually think about more uh, how the proliferation of outlets has made our whole landscape, if you like, of political information and news so different. I mean, people can nowadays go to so many different types of sites and they uh, look at and listen to news in so many different uh, ways podcasts, YouTube, and so on. And I think the, again, the information landscape has changed so much. Uh, and we still don't know enough about that, except that, of course, people 
do use those outlets for political information. And the kind of information that they find is uh, quite different. And so I think the, maybe to shift the question a little bit, I think the difference is rather between what use, what you used to have with traditional media, which is professional journalistic news, and if you like gate-kept information on the one side, and this new proliferation of channels where people might have more commentary, or they might have more in-depth investigation, or they might have a whole different set of approaches, but that is not gate-kept, and that is not the traditional public sphere, or what I would prefer to call the public arena that we were used to before the internet, or even 10 years ago, when that was much more uh, adhering to norms of journalism or of political fact-checking or of providing a kind of neutral, more uh, objective, if you like, uh, picture of what was going on in the world. Mm -hmm. And do we have any idea if the kinds of information people are exposed to online, being it uh, selective exposure or not, uh, as any sort of impact on their offline political behavior? Well, that's much more hard to say. And I think um, there again, I would like to shift the question somewhat because my argument has been, and I'm not the only one who has made this argument, is that at that point, we should really uh, shift the focus to when is it possible to change, let's say, the political agenda? When is it possible to that this kind of new uh, exposure to information really leads to something like, for example, political change? And there, I mean, I'm shifting the ground of your question because I, I do think it needs to be posed somewhat differently. So you have this rich series of channels that people uh, use for their political information. But let's think about a very concrete example of some major political changes that have taken place in recent years. And here, let's just take for the sake of argument, uh, the election of Donald Trump in 2016 and the election of Mr. Modi, I think it was in 2015, maybe? Now, how did that change the kind of political information that people were exposed to? Well, what happened with both those leaders, and it's almost uncanny how similar they are in this respect, is that the traditional media, the traditional public sphere or arena that I was talking about in a moment, that was something that almost excluded them. That for example, in 2015, when Mr. Trump announced that he was running for president, most of the traditional media ignored him and said, this is very unlikely to happen. We're not going to cover this. So Mr. Trump said, I'm going to Twitter. I'm going to just uh, disseminate my views on Twitter. And he started to do that. The same thing happened with Mr. Modi, that he was actually uh, ignored by the traditional media when he was first uh, 
thought to be running for prime minister. Both these cases are also similar insofar as their own parties did not want them. They actually excluded these uh, candidates because they thought that they could never manage and they were not in keeping with the views of their respective parties at that time. So both of them took to Twitter and that was really innovative. Whether you, obviously we can, I don't share their political views, but that's neither here nor there. Now, one thing that is very tricky is to then say, well, are you saying that Twitter changed the election outcome? And the problem is that the answer to that immediately is no, because Twitter on its own did not change anything. Two further things were needed. One is, of course, that people were receptive. This comes back to your selective exposure a little bit, that people were receptive to their message. But the other thing that had to happen is that the tweets that these two leaders uh, threw out and where they communicated in a rather different way from how we are used to communicating when people are, for example, interviewed in news conferences and so on. They made outrageous claims. They made really strong claims. But those claims then needed to be covered by traditional media because they were so salient and maybe they were also newsworthy. And so these two candidates came to be covered much more extensively than their rival candidates for prime minister or even of the other parties. And so it's not never just social media or one social medium on its own that changes the landscape. But what happens is that challengers who use these new media in new ways, and then that gets taken up and disseminated across the landscape, that really does change the political scenery. And I would go so far as to say, Twitter plus traditional media plus the support that these two candidates were given really enabled them uh, to become into the powerful figures that they became. Now, that was innovative for the time and that might not happen again because nowadays anybody can think that they can use Twitter in this way. But for the time, it was an innovation and it really, to my mind, uh, shows that social media can have a major effect. But the receptivity has to be there. It has to be a message that resonates with a large group of people, as it did in this case. Mm -hmm. Talking about populism now, uh, what is the myth of populism as a thin ideology? Well, again, let me just uh, uh, back up here and uh, say uh, for the audience that you might have yeah. that Populism studies has really exploded in the last few years. And, uh, you know, I, other people have studied it for far longer than I have, but it's really taken off. And the reason why it's taken off is obvious because uh, there have been many populist leaders that have become elected or that have challenged existing parties in just in, in, in the last five or 10 years or so in a way that they really hadn't. Although populism itself, of course, is, is over 100 years old in certain parts of the world. 
Now, in the scholarship, I would say that the majority of people regard it as a thin ideology. And what they mean by that is that it is not a freestanding ideology like others, like, for example, liberalism or socialism or communism or social democracy. And the reason they say that is that populism takes lots of different forms and that it's more to do, let's say, with the leadership or that people exploit the way that they can get support and they don't really have a thick ideology. They don't really have a, a full bodied, if you like, ideology. It's just that populism piggybacks on other things like strong nationalism and so on. And in that way, uh, 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 pervades so many places and times, and uh, it's therefore thin. I've argued against that because, to my mind, actually, you you have to rethink this whole um, idea of political ideology a little bit, and consider that populism does actually have some core features. And those core features, to my mind, and again, I'm not alone in thinking this, are that it's anti-elite. So populism can be defined as being, for one, anti-elite. For two, uh, it is the people, however defined, that should be more in power. And thirdly, uh, that, the, that the populist uh, ideas should enable them to have more power in that way. Now, let's unpack that a little bit because that actually has left and right-wing versions. So in the right-wing version, you are typically uh, against elites uh, that are, let's say, not uh, exclusionary enough, that, uh, uh, that would like to uh, be more inclusive in the left-wing version, it tends to be capitalist elites, pro-globalist elites, and so on. Now, again, in terms of the people, the second part of the definition of populism, the right-wing version tends to be saying that uh, certain groups should be excluded from power. Because after all, if you say the people, it should be the people who rule then you're saying we are the people and others are not. And in the right-wing version, that tends to be anti-immigration or anti-certain cultural features. In the left-wing version, it tends to be that you want to have some kind of ec economic exclusionism. So the globalization is robbing us, the people, of jobs, let's say, or is robbing us of economic opportunities. So there should be stronger economic barriers. And so finally, the the populist would say, well, we should be in power more. Now, coming back to the question of whether that's a thin ideology, well, actually, I think it is a strong ideology. It has certain core features and it is as uh, rich, if you like, or as cohesive as other ideologies. Socialism or liberalism, um, for example, can be defined in many different ways. And it's they're as loose or as cohesive as other ideologies. But if we think about that, 
then that makes the contemporary landscape of politics uh, rather strange because uh, I think populism is a little bit confusing because it tends to go beyond uh, right and left in some ways, beyond right or left-wing ideologies. And that's a little bit tricky. Let me give you some two very specific examples. So I study Sweden a lot. In Sweden, you have a an anti-immigrant, uh, strongly right-wing populist party, uh, namely the Sweden Democrats. And they get about 20% uh, in opinion polls and in, 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 in votes in the last couple of elections or so. Now, the interesting thing that is about the, that party is that it's really difficult to consider it right-wing because it's also economically populist. It is also economic protectionist and it's also anti-globalist. So it has a strong left-wing element in it, which is in keeping with Swedish politics for over a hundred years. And so it's, it's a little bit beyond right and left. I would all also argue, and this is probably a bit more controversial, that Mr. Trump, who is typically seen as a, as a strong right-winger, actually some of his policies were more in keeping with what were previously democratic politics, economic protectionism, a certain kind of isolationism in foreign policy, which did not want to go abroad and fight for freedom across the world, let's say. So he actually had a, a, a strong populist left-wing element to his policies. I'm sketching this very, in very broad brush strokes here, but you know, I think he really shifted the ground of where American politics and particularly the Republican Party were before he came to power. And I think we also have to bear in mind that this is a year in which the Americans have midterms. And although Mr. Trump was defeated in uh, 20, uh, 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 last year, uh, he, or rather the year before, his uh, agenda is still tearing the Republican Party apart. And we don't know what will happen there, whether populism of his kind of brand, of his kind of... Well, I think it's it's a thick ideology that he's presenting, that he's presenting a coherent package. It's just we don't know how to define that or pinpoint that package. But to my mind, it is as uh, cohesive and as popularly appealing as some other ideologies. I'm sorry, that was again a very long-winded answer, but I hope I've come back to the main point, which is that I do think that populism is becoming stronger in many places. It's curious to think about how many different uh, populist uh, leaders have come into power. It's also important not to overstate this and make it into a, into a kind of global phenomenon because there are some countries, Japan comes to mind or Ireland where populism is not really on the radar, which don't have populism. Uh, and so it's important not to overstate and make everything into populism. But in certain countries, it certainly has uh, found appeal and, and it has gotten stronger. And we don't know what, what, what that will, in the end, uh, wind up as, um, you know, whether that ideology, that thick ideology, uh, will continue to have appeal and whether it will 
evolve and 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 strengthen or whether it will weaken over time who knows yes but would you say generally that populism is on the rise well it has been on the rise for some years but in certain parts of the world uh, rather than in others i mean i said earlier that populism has been around for well over a hundred years in the US, it was uh, it was quite widespread in the late 19th century. In Latin America, it waxed and waned over the course of the 20th century and was much stronger there. I'm not sure that it's it's stronger there today than it was in the past. But in certain countries, at least, it is it has found new shapes. It has found a new receptivity or new uh, resonance. And uh, that has uh, become stronger in certain parts of the world where we previously didn't have it, such as Sweden again, or in Germany. I mean, in Germany, some people compare populism to fascism. I don't think that's correct um, because the populism that we've seen recently in Germany, for example, has very different and very specific uh, roots. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. But... It has risen in Germany, and and if we go around the world, I mean, I don't know much about Philippine politics, for example, or uh, politics in uh, Indonesia and so on, but Turkey is another very uh, interesting example. I mean, Mr. Erdogan is certainly a populist politician, and that is, again, for Turkey, it is relatively new. Excuse me. <clears throat> yeah. Okay, so I would like to explore one last topic with you today. Um, is big data useful for social science? And if so, in what ways? Right, that's again, you are posing all these very big and uh, broad questions. I think uh, big data is very important for social science. Uh, I think it's important to uh, think about why that has taken such a different turn in recent years? Well, one obvious answer is that we simply have much more data. Social scientists have in, in the last decade or two uh, had a lot more, particularly digital data. I was talking earlier about this web tracking data that we have about having very fine-grained data from all the clicks that people make over a series of months. Well, we didn't used to have that kind of data before. And we obviously have lots of data about the emails, the different Facebook uh, uh, expressions, the uh, Twitter data is a very popular source of data for social scientists. So I think we are in an era when uh, those kinds of digital data or digital media data more specifically, but also other kinds of data such as tracking people's movements with their mobile phones and so on, that that has really made uh, social science have uh, a much more uh, uh, rich and uh, much more extensive data sets than we had before. I think one thing that is curious, though, is that it has also meant that lots of people in different ways explore these data. And here we could talk about the different disciplines and the way in which they work together. 
I mean, the place where I work, the Oxford Internet Institute, we now work very closely and have as members of our staff computer scientists, people who know how to program, how to scrape large amounts of data from the web and so on. And so it's exciting times. I think the thing that's happened is that therefore social sciences have become uh, much more quantitatively oriented. But it's important to say that also qualitative data has become much more available and much more can be much more richly examined if we think about, for example, images or how you analyze text from a qualitative point of view. So the, the, the data has become much more abundant. What has happened though, is that therefore, social scientists have become, come to explore lots of different topics in many, many more different ways. And I've argued that what is interesting here is that only in certain topics that does social science therefore become more cumulative. And by cumulative, I simply mean that people build on each other's results. And that is also possible more now than it used to be because, for example, people put data sets online for other researchers to use. Or people say, well, for example, we've examined this web tracking data set and that shows us this, but if we examine it from a more powerful perspective, looking at even more fine-grained analysis of this, then we find something that improves upon that understanding. So that kind of accumulation, that sense that we can build on each other's work has also improved. But while social sciences have been energized, if you like, by this influx of data, um, there hasn't been as much, if you like, consensus uh, about what those data mean. And that is, of course, a traditional problem in social science generally, that people cannot agree on what to study and what the findings really represent. So I think my the answer that I'm kind of moving towards here is that theoretical integration the way in which we make sense of these data and put them together into some kind of theoretical holes, that is not as advanced as strongly, but I think that's an opportunity that still lies in the future where a lot more really, really interesting work can be done so that you pull all these interesting big data studies together and try to make sense of how they really allow us to make social sciences more coherent and I think that's perhaps a, a, a really promising arena for future social science to work in. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, that bit about uh, theorizing was precisely what I wanted to ask you about. Do you think that big data in any way makes it more difficult for people to theorize on those big, uh, huge sets of data that we have now? or? Is that not really a big issue? Well, it is a big issue, but it's um, it's not something that you can easily say it's one thing or another, because of course people are able to theorize more strongly and more powerfully. It's just that uh, that kind of theorizing has not, if you like, gone in lockstep enough with all these different studies. So I think 
a different way to put this is that theorizing has lagged behind the explosion really that we have had in all these different domains in all these different ways that have studied so many different things in new ways so i think that's still to come and again i don't think we know whether theorizing is going to be able to become stronger because that depends on a lot of other factors such as whether different social science disciplines like economics and psychology and sociology can work more closely hand in hand whether they can arrive at agreements whether they can find that they are actually there's much more scope for consensus and for accumulation in that way uh, than they might have done in the past but those are bigger problems and bigger issues in social sciences i think the possibility of theorizing more strongly is certainly there. And I think that's probably one of the most exciting things happening in social sciences, that people are starting to think about how do we bring all these different uh, results of, I mean, we've been calling it big data. You could equally well say it's computational social science or a kind of social science that's enabled by having these uh, new data sets. Also, old data sets. I mean, I think we, we're talking about digital media, but there are so many different uh, data sets that are being explored now that are so much more rich, so much more long term. If you think of the work of the French uh, political economist Thomas Piketty, for example, he is putting uh, together data sets about wealth and particularly income over the very long term or people who study violent conflict who are putting together uh, data sets about wars and how they've influenced states over the long term and what that has meant. Well, in all these areas, data sets are being produced in much more long term and long range and much more powerful comparative analyses are being done. But theorizing them, bringing them together, that's really a question of, uh, you know, thinking about that. And I think we we have had eras in which people have brought uh, theories more coherently to bear, but it's difficult to see uh, how that could be done. But I think again, Piketty and others, and in digital media, there are also certain people who are trying to bring these data together. And, uh, and again, I think that's a very rich and promising area for the future. Mm -hmm. Very well. So, Dr. Schroeder, uh, before we go, would you like to mention any places on the Internet where people can find your work? Well, my website uh, certainly uh, has all my papers and I think uh, the Oxford Internet Institute. Uh, I mean, I think one of the, the, the joys that I've had in recent years is to be among a community of scholars. I mean, we're not the only ones studying the Internet, obviously. But I think uh, we do a lot of uh, uh, interesting work and there are a number of uh, places that are uh, doing exciting work in this area. And it's been really fun to, to work on this topic, just as it was fun to work on virtual reality from the early 1990s. I was working in different places and with different people at the time and I worked in Sweden for a while. But now I've been at the Oxford Internet Institute, I think, for 15 years and it's been a it's been a wonderful experience because we work with so many different disciplines and with so many talented students here. Uh, it's been a joy. 
Okay, great. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. And it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Right. Likewise. Very good questions. Very interesting discussion. Thank you so much. Okay. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you liked it, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. Please also consider supporting the show on Patreon or PayPal. All of the links are in the description of the interview. The show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke and Blanchett, Pergolars and Lagurero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Lenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Bernardo Seixas, Paulo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Pinha, Phil Cavana, Robert Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenk, Hal Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslin Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Denise Cook, Scott, and Zachary Fish. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafinia, Kian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardis France, Thomas Trumbull, and Nuno Welder. And my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano, and Bogdan Canivet. Thank you for all.